3: That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash wondery.
1: This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at clearme.com slash Peter and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide.
0: Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel podcast. If you ever wanted to know the true economic power and impact of travel and tourism, then consider this. It's the biggest industry in the world. It represents one out of every 10 jobs. And before the pandemic, one out of every five new jobs. The global average of GDP represented by travel and tourism is just under 11%. But in many countries, either driven by or dependent upon tourism, the GDP contribution can be as high as 70%. Such is the case in the Turks and Caicos. So when the pandemic hit, it was an existential threat, not just as a public health issue, but an economic one. So I sat down with the country's premier, Washington Misik, to talk about how the Turks and Caicos not only survived, but how they are now thriving. Arnie Weissman, editor-in-chief of Travel Weekly, reports on the global staff shortages in travel and how this is not a short-term problem. And on a lighter note, I'll talk with Dylan Thuris, the co-author and founder of one of my favorite books, Atlas Obscura, about his latest book, Gastro Obscura, perhaps the ultimate food guide. First up, the honorable premier of the Turks and Caicos, Washington Missick.
1: You can host the best backyard barbecue when you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.
0: I've been coming to the Turks and Caicos for nearly 40 years. Uh, When I first came here, uh, not many roads. Uh, There was one really bad hotel, uh, the Ramada Inn. (laughs) <laughs> my guest is laughing. I'll, I'll, I'll introduce you in a second. Uh, uh, but it did have a casino. Uh, I do remember that. But I keep coming back because it is small, it is manageable, it's beautiful, and it's managed to survive, especially even during the pandemic, in ways that other countries are still struggling. And so towards that end, and by the way, uh, my next guest knows all about that because he's the Honorable Premier of the Turks and Caicos Washington Mystic not, Mr. Premier, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you, very much for having me.
0: You know, the Turks and Caicos is one of about 14 British overseas
2: territories.
0: We've been to most of them, um, and including, by the way, Saint Helena.
2: Oh, really? Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, I mean, the, the talk about remote.
2: Wow! Right? Oh, yeah they used to say the sun never sat on the British Empire but I'm not sure that's true anymore.
0: Well if you, if you include if you include Saint Helena then you might be in because for those people who don't know it's smack dab in the middle of absolutely nowhere in the South Atlantic. It's yeah. midway between Africa and South America yeah. and it's where Napoleon was exiled. That's right Most people think he was exiled in Elba well he was. And then he escaped, and then he fought the British at the Battle of Waterloo, and he lost. Yep. And he's so angry the British, they said, okay, now we're going to send you to one place you can never <laughs> escape. And they were right. Yep. He got there in 1815, he died in 1821, but a great place to visit if you can get there. The good news about this British overseas territory is you can get here.
2: Yes. Many, many gateways from the United States and other parts of the world will lend you here within hours. So particularly from the northeastern coast of America, you can be here. On the beach here in three hours.
0: Does me does being a British overseas territory mean anything these days?
2: It does. It does. You know. Um, sometimes I describe it as a love-hate relationship. But a great example of what it means is the fact that we were one of the first countries in this part of the world to have uh, received uh, the, the the vaccination, and that is part of the reason why we've done so well. Uh, during this pandemic, we've. Well, let's
0: talk about that because when things started to go south in March of 2020, you were one of the first destinations that I know about to completely shut down and lock down.
2: Yes, I mean, this is a small destination, like you said. We, have, uh, we still have limited facilities, health facilities, we have a couple of good hospitals, the medical uh, services here are socialized, but um, tourism is our main. Um, Arno? What's the GDP on that? Uh, the GDP, the overall GDP of the Turks and Caicos po- previous to COVID was $1.25 billion.
0: But how much of that was travel and tourism? Um,
2: travel and tourism, when you add directly, is around 39%. But By when, the way, the
0: international average is about 10. Yeah. You're at 39.
2: Well, when you add all of the link- linkages to tourism, it's a lot more than that. It's probably closer to around 76%. Whoa. Turks and Caicos Islands is probably uh, the most tourism-dependent destination after Macau. And, in the world? In the world. Very tourism-dependent.
0: So when you shut down, you know what you're getting into.
2: When we shut down, we know when we get in. That's why it was very important to, to shut down so we can open early.
0: And so how did you do that? Did you really have a plan or were you flying by the seat of your pants? Because it's a learning opportunity here.
2: Well, to be honest with you, you ask about the relationship with the United Kingdom. We've had... A lot of uh, assistance from the UK um, Public Health England uh, worked with us to make sure we uh, had the necessary protocols in place early, but also we were very fortunate in that we had uh, significant reserves, cash reserves, so that we could close the border and still uh, support ourselves during that period of time. Because
0: if you take a look at trying to connect the dots, if people don't come, people don't eat. You can't put food on the table. Uh, When you can't put food on the table, if you look at this historically, governments get destabilized and collapse. So you had to make sure you were protecting your own people. Otherwise, they had nowhere to go.
2: No, uh, the truth of the matter is uh, sustainability is a big issue. And COVID-19 has highlighted that more than at any other time. So government now has to refocus its, its strategic attention towards sustainability in all its dimensions, including food security and food sovereignty, because everything is imported from an egg to a steak to a, a lettuce head, a head of lettuce, everything. And if it doesn't come in, if you're in trouble. If it doesn't come in, we're in trouble. Yes.
0: So how did you keep the supply chain going?
2: Well, the supply chain was not impacted, uh, fortunately. We, the, the ships continue to come out of Florida to deliver important uh, merchandise your
0: favorite it, item is a container isn't it
2: <laughs> yes yes absolutely you absolutely. want that
0: 55 foot long uh, container abso- showing up every day
2: absolutely if it doesn't show up i mean to be honest with you if we don't those ships don't come we can be completely out of supply within two weeks wow you know so. and
0: that's just for the people who live here not for the visitors
2: well for the people who live here um, and the visitors, because obviously the frequency of the ship and the quantity of merchandise that's coming in fluctuates with the level of uh, people on the island at any one point in time. You know, we have um, on Providenciales approximately 30,000 residents and at 400 plus thousand visitors a year. So that gives you an idea of sure. what we're dealing with. Well, let's talk
0: about those numbers because let's go back to like January and February of 2020. The buzzword that was on the table pre pandemic was over tourism. That was topic A in every discussion everybody had. You know, you had the models of Venice or Barcelona. Nobody wanted to become another Venice, right? Yep. Yep. What was your challenge back then, before the pandemic?
2: Well, the, 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 before the pandemic, uh, our challenge is basically the same before and now. Uh, This is a small, delicate ecosystem and because of a confluence of uh, factors including the the fact that this is an overseas British territory, uh, British common law, the rule of law, security, um, the fact that we're so close to our source market, the United States, the fact that there's no conversion problem with the currency because we use the U.S. currency. All the, queen, of the, the
0: queen is not on the currency. No,
2: <laughs> and the proximity, <laughs> the strategic proximity to the U.S., and all of these things converge to make the Turks and Caicos an extremely attractive destination for investment and for tourism. So we have a the problem we have is opposite to the problem a lot of other places have. We literally have people pushing at the door. So our problem is really containment, in the sense that we have to balance from a sort of a triple bottom line pr- perspective. Uh, economic growth uh sustainability of the economy and social balance that's really our our issue our issue is not people interested in the destination we want to make sure that we keep keep it pristine keep it high high quality high level and 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 um, keep the economy i mean the the environment uh, pristine and also crime free and all of those beautiful reasons why people come here.
0: Of course, a lot of that was potentially disrupted by the pandemic.
2: A lot of it was uh, interrupted by the pandemic. Absolutely a lot of it is interrupted by the pandemic. But, um, you know, we did what we had to do. We closed down. As I said, we had good reserve because Turks and Caicos is one of the few countries in this region or in the world that actually has a sovereign wealth fund. We had significant cash reserves, we have one of the best uh, public finance management structures in the whole Caribbean. Which, which
0: speaks to your background, right, Mr. PwC? Uh, yes, yes, speaks <laughs> to my background. I'm,
2: I, I'm, I'm proud to have been associated with some of those good decisions.
0: Right. Yeah. So. When you did lock down, you just didn't lock down in a vacuum. You figured out what your vaccination protocols were going to be. You insisted on insurance. You had to come up with an insurance protocol, yeah. right? And what's interesting about the insurance protocol is, let me give you the subtext of so many travelers. You know, everybody talks about uh, pent-up demand. I think that's a lie. The demand has always been there. Yeah. yeah. But people were saying, as much as I want to go, and as desperate as I am to go, I don't want to get somewhere and get sick and not be able to come home, yeah. and that stopped them from going in the first place.
2: Yeah, so the insurance allow us to be able to medevac people out if they were, if they came and got sick, and that had that happened on a few occasions, people had to be medevac, back to the United States, which is the source of our, our tourism visitors. And now with the insurance, um, it's, it's, it's still in place, and in fact, what we're trying to do at the moment is improve the whole portal experience. Uh, to make it almost like a pre-clearance experience where if you're booking from a safe destination and you arrive in Turks and Caicos, you're sped through the airport. um, That system will probably be in place sometime between now and the end of of March of this year.
0: Mr. Premier, it's one thing that you had the insurance policy in place. That protected you as well. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely.
0: And you said only a few cases where they had to be medevaced.
2: Yes, we had very few medevac cases. uh, But the
0: idea, you know, the true definition of luxury travel is when you get to keep your options. So the idea that you could was enough to get people to come here in the first place.
2: Yeah, I mean, we were also one of the first destinations to have acquired one to be fully uh, vaccinated to come to Turks and Caicos. Uh, We were quite elated. To see that the us did it a month or so later, but again because we de- we're so dependent on tourism we don't want to have to shut the islands down again so we want to play it safe and that might have cost us some some visitors but I think on balance it kept us safe and and might have been an attraction to some some other visitors right. it didn't know.
0: cost you the wrong visitors it cost no, you. no. I mean, when you think right no <laughs> let's go forward because you mentioned sustainability it's a word that still still basically begs for a definition absolutely right. How has that definition changed in the wake of the, of the pandemic?
2: Well, the definition has changed uh, in the wake of the pandemic on a number of fronts. One, particularly as it relates to the sustainability of, of food sustainability. right? Um, the, it means the government's, one of the government's strategic focus now has to be on how do we put in place a strategy to ensure or at least a minimum num- uh, number of months, uh, a, a food security system, investing in agriculture, mariculture, aquaculture, uh, so that if the ships can't come, at least people could eat. It does two things. It makes sure that the local people could eat, but it also builds up an industry that creates linkages to a main tourism industry so that uh, if nothing else happens, we have a system where you know the egg you're eating now is an organic egg, or the the um, the leaf of lettuce or the tomatoes in your breakfast. is could su- supplement the import that we would normally have to do. So it changes in sustainability in that way.
0: You're banking the food too.
2: Yes, yes, we are basically investing heavily in, uh, in 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 that area, and also from a sustainability point of view. Uh, looking at how we can diversify the um, our economy, um, we've always. What does p- what the Turks and Caicos produce? Well, actually, we have a. We've always had a small fisheries industry, and we've been on the cutting edge of the financial services sector. But we've never really taken off like in the same way the Cayman Islands or the Bahamas or the BVI have. Uh, and but we we do have because of our Strategic geographic location, there is the possibility for a, quite a lucrative fisheries industry, which I'm currently now exploring with assistance from the United Kingdom government, uh, as a way of one way of diversifying the economy. Uh, potentially, we could generate up to 50 million dollars very quickly if we exploit properly and sustainably the fisheries p- potential that's here. Especially if you protect the fisheries. Well, this is why I say it has to be sustainable in terms of how the methodology of the catch uh, and, and uh, how it is, how it is um, processed and where it is processed and, and how it is financed. And I bet that this. was a learning
0: curve for you because what, what did you know about fishing?
2: Well, I grew up, well, I knew a little bit because I grew up in North Caicos. Well, you you fished. Yes, I fished. But in terms (laughs) of the economics of it, all I knew, you caught fish and you sold it and you got some money. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I knew. (laughs) And now? And now it's a whole new, uh, the world has changed. And of course, uh, the ocean and not only the ocean, but also the farming aspect of fishes is a huge, huge, huge Sector, and and is one that we intend to exploit.
0: Speaking of the oceans, Turks and Caicos not necessarily a cruise ship destination.
2: Well, uh, yes, in Grand Turk. In Grand Turk, but not on this island. No, no. I think we want to be very, very careful about how we segment our industry. We don't want necessarily personally. uh, I think governments, mine and previous government, have always. Want to keep Providenciales uh, free of t- cruise tourism? We do have some extremely high-end uh, property here, and we do have a very uh, um, so many options. I don't think we really need the cruise options. Grand Turk is a different situation altogether. But you still have to manage it. We have to manage it. In fact, we've just inked a $25 million expansion to the port in Grand Turk two days ago with Carnival. Before 2019, um, we were delivering 1.1 million visitors to the third, Carnival's third most popular port in the world. Of course, if
0: you have a requirement that you have to be vaccinated before you come to the Turks and Caicos, that applies to the cruise ships as well.
2: Yes, and they have guaranteed us they are due to be here on the 7th of December with the first ship in Grand Turk, and they have guaranteed us that uh, accept persons with, with medical exemptions, Um, which has to be approved by our own medical system. All of their passengers will be vaccinated. Premier uh, Washington Missick, thank you so much for joining us.
0: My thanks to Premier Missick. The world may be opening up to travel, but that doesn't mean it's prepared to truly greet you with the hospitality so many of us have come to expect. The editor-in-chief of Travel Weekly, Arnie Weissman, has some sobering numbers. Joining me now, actually in person, uh, someone we have on the show regularly, not just on this show, but on our, our weekly PPS travel series called The Travel Detective, the editor-in-chief of Travel Weekly, Arnie Weissman. Arnie, welcome. Uh, you, you've come to the Turks and Caicos before. I have. Uh, lots of changes here, but especially in terms of the pandemic, uh, you know, this is a country that uh, moved quickly to lockdown. They literally shut down. I mean, people were basically kept in their homes. They couldn't even go out. They had military patrolling the street until they can get a handle on, on, on basically the protocols they needed to follow. And then they were one of the first to reopen uh, with an insurance policy uh, mandate
4: in place, with, with testing in place, and they seem to have done okay. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is this is a country, not really a country, a territory, as you mentioned, who is so dependent on tourism The economy is, someone told me, I don't know if this is quite accurate, but 90% of the revenue that comes in is, on the GDP is related to tourism. Uh, I was here last, maybe 18 years ago. Uh, The change is unbelievable. The entire coastline now is beachfront properties, many of them uh, hotels, some of them private. Uh, but everybody who's coming here is uh, related to tourism. There are 33,000 people who live here, and uh, only 12,000. 12,000 of the uh, people who are coming are tourists. So you've got about a one out of every four people you're going to see here is a tourist, and the other three depend on them for a living.
0: Although there's still enough space so that you're not crowded. We're coming to you from uh, the beach enclave, which is a set of villas on the water. Uh, all very private, all very exclusive, but you're seeing that throughout the island.
4: Yeah, it, it, when we've been going around, uh, the roads are certainly not crowded. The restaurants are not crowded, but the good ones are full. And it does seem that things aren't relatively normal. We're in, we're in kind of low season, so that you would not be see as many as you might, let's say, next February. But I would think next February, they are ready.
0: And they are. By the way, this is not a destination for cruise ships.
4: No, they, they, there's uh, too many reefs around the islands. Uh, the water's not quite deep enough for uh, a large ship to come in. They could tender in, I suppose, but they're, they're just not interested in it. It's not a bad idea. At least, at least for this particular island, it seems to work.
0: Very much so. Uh, you, you mentioned the depth of the water from where we are right here in the beach enclave. If you just walk out into the into the water, you can walk for about a half a
4: mile, and it never gets yeah. higher than your than your waist. right. I mean, it does depend on which which island yeah. and which side of the island. Uh, what is really big here uh, is kite surfing. And one reason is that the trade winds are pretty consistent uh, year round. And that isn't true on every island. so you you will look out the window and see some kite surfing going on, uh, which is fun to watch, actually. So when you
0: look at all of these island nations or overseas territories, so dependent, uh, their economy not just driven, but dependent on travel and tourism, what's
4: their biggest challenge moving forward in the wake of COVID-19? Well, it's interesting because they they have a lot of the people who are the workers here uh, are actually from other Caribbean islands. And I think their challenge is not dissimilar to what you find in other places, which is staffing. So if you're in a luxury property, uh, such as Beach Enclave, then they will do what it takes. Uh, I don't know if you've met all the butlers, but there's ones from Indonesia, there's one from Bhutan, uh, one from Dominica. So it's really interesting that they, you know, they're in a position to be able to bring staff in and keep them happy. And uh, but on the other hand, I would think that some of the larger properties that are dependent on very local, very regional help and are paying at that scale are going to have difficulties. What's going to happen, I think, here. What's going to happen in other places is they're going to have to raise the salaries in order to but attract. But that's industry wide now.
0: That's industry wise That's right, yeah. I mean, we're redefining the minimum wage, whether you're a busser at a restaurant, whether you're a housekeeper, uh, whether you're a bellhop, I mean, you know, it's the most interesting development to me and some some of the most problematic developments has been if you go to a restaurant in Italy, the waiter who's at your table or the waitress who's at your table, it's not their job, it's their profession. It's what they have always wanted to do. It's what they aspire to do. It's what they do. It's what they love to do. That's not the case in many cases in the United States, where you have someone who's your waitress at a restaurant in Los Angeles. Is It could be, I know it's just, it sounds stereotypical, but it's not far from the actual reality. It may be an out-of-work actress. And during the pandemic, during these last 19 months, it's given everybody everybody listening to the show, if you're honest, you'll agree with me, an opportunity to reassess your own life, your lifestyle, where you live, your cost of living, what's valuable to you, what's not. And we've seen unbelievable changes in mobility and and, and movement in the workforce where people are leaving certain cities and abandoning them, uh, or they're now arriving in certain cities that are always ignored. Um, And then, of course, questioning their lot
4: in life, So it's not more than it's more than just the minimum wage, isn't it? It is, and there's there's actually this phrase, the Great Resignation, and there's actually more. If if you in polling historically, forty percent of the people always say, "Yeah, I'm thinking about changing a job," but now uh, it's gone up to in some cases. Some polls are showing seventy, eighty percent of people are thinking it's time to move on and uh, to another job. And when you look also to your point of going to other countries and seeing people who take not a job but a career. One thing that's always impressed me if, if, uh, is the taxi drivers in Germany. The people, they when you have a conversation with them, some of them are college educated. Uh, they're, they're all taking their job very, very seriously. And it's just uh, we have a different uh, type of economy in the U.S., and a lot of times those jobs – are just stepping stones to something else. They're just waiting to do something else. Here's the problem. Right now,
0: there are a lot of, a lot of discarded stepping stones. Uh, there are a lot of things left on the wayside, if you will. And there's not a, there's not a plan for replacing them. And, and so when we see staffing shortages at hotels and at restaurants, especially in those two sectors, uh, the prognosis for filling those jobs over the next six months it's not necessarily rosy.
4: No, it's, and, and frankly, it may be much longer than six months. Uh, there really is I – mean, this isn't this, – we have depended on supply and demand uh, and for filling jobs, for all sorts of things. What's so interesting and what's so different is that there is a plenty of demand – and the supply, when it comes to the labor force, has just seemed to evaporate. And it's it's sort of inexplicable, isn't it? Because the benefits have gone away, the, the pandemic benefits have gone away, people need to work, people need to eat, and yet those jobs are going unfilled. And and so what's the upside here? What, what, what Where do you see this going? You know, well, the upside is that I think wages will raise, which is a good thing uh, for these particular jobs, but that... The other side of that is, it's going to add to inflation. So the cost of
0: travel and the cost of all goods, goods and services, are ine- it's inevitably going to rise.
4: Correct, I think so. And um, so, you know, it's one of those things. Are we going to say, well, we're so afraid of inflation that people who have for years been in essence underpaid. Should continue to be underpaid? I mean, that's not a fair and equitable way to look at things either. So this is a problem society is facing. I don't know that there's an easy answer. Well, you know, let's let's get down to the basic connecting of the dots.
0: You know, your eight dollar and ninety-five cent cheeseburger just went to eleven dollars at a restaurant, um, and I'm probably being low on that number uh, simply because restaurants are going to have to pay more than the minimum wage. To retain not just the people you see in the front of the house, but the people you don't see in the back of the house, and that doesn't even count the the, the increased cost of the goods themselves, the actual food they're buying, uh, all of that's going up.
4: Yeah, and we're we're as we're facing, and it's not obviously just with the travel industry, but we're facing supply chain supply chain issues across the board, and that too is adding to the cost of everything. So. At the same time, within travel and tourism, you're seeing a lot of countries who were having an over-tourism problem, they were having trouble, they were being overwhelmed, not just overcrowded, that they used this period to think, what can we do? And what a lot of them decided was, we're going to go for a low-density, high-cost model. Uh, And that will, in fact, keep a lot of people away. The question is, does that work against the democratization of travel? Is travel only going to be for the elite to certain areas?
0: And by the way, the subject that Arnie just raised is going to be topic A for the next year to two years because it's coming. Arnie, one of the things that I noticed uh, as a sort of an interesting byproduct of the pandemic is if you thought travel agents were dead, if you thought they were extinct, uh, think again. They were now needed more than ever as advocates for travelers. Uh, to, you know, basically lobby to get people their refunds, their insurance, uh, rebooking things that just that all the things that were disrupted during the pandemic. They now were in the middle of this fight And, and they weren't making any money on it, but but
4: they were actually proving their value. They were proving their value in that. And also as a result of the pandemic, if you're going to travel abroad now, you're going to spend quite a bit of time filling out what they call passenger locator Record forms. You're going to be spending time in the case of the Turks and Caicos, where we are right now. Mandatory insurance. You have to have travel insurance and prove it to even arrive in the country. There are so. And by the way, this differs country by country by country. The different demands. So it gets very very complicated. And um, reports in the New York Times, Town and Country magazine, have all been saying travel agents more than ever are proving their worth in trying to get through the complexities. So what's happening, uh, very interestingly, is on the tr- it's creating changes in the travel agency models. So many of the people who are coming have not been to a travel agency since the dawn of Expedia. So they, have, they aren't accustomed to working with travel agents. And they're learning, as one travel agent uh, put it, that a travel agency is not just uh, Expedia with a face. It is, in fact, a whole model that uh, you could you could look at real estate's uh, a realtor as being a, a, an example. Whereas I think a lot of people would think, okay, I'll talk to the travel agent, I'll get the advice, then I'll go shop online for the best price. So you wouldn't take a, a realtor's time and say, show me a hundred houses, and then just kind of go off on your own and buy. It. That's not really how it's how it's done. So what travel agencies are doing increasingly is charging fees for their services, because the services are getting more and more complex. So then in this, in a case like this, you would on a phone say, well, here's what I am, uh, here's what I charge for this, here's what I charge for that. And you will quickly get the shoppers off your plate because a new tra- a new client for a travel agency if they haven't been there for a while requires a bit more handholding than in days uh, past when they would have clients who come Well would right now any along. client requires more handholding because it's so confusing out there. Yeah. So what they're doing it's interestingly we've we've been reporting on travel agencies that are essentially firing clients who are not really Uh, adding anything to their bottom line because they are so busy doing so many things. They're kind of looking through who are the clients who really want the type of advice that they can give because in the old days, they were really order takers. You couldn't buy an airline ticket other than going directly to the airline or through a travel agent. Now, of course, everyone can just go online and get an airline ticket. Uh, So these days, travel agents who now call themselves overwhelmingly travel advisors are doing exactly that. They're providing advice, they're providing detailed recommendations day by day, and they are proving their worth. And by the way, you found out how much they were worth
0: when everything went up in smoke after the pandemic because who were you gonna call? You know, The people who went on the online travel agencies found out very quickly there was nobody you could call. (laughs) Uh, They didn't have the staff, they didn't have the resources. Uh, They weren't structured
4: that way. No, uh, they were, they were a call center essentially. I mean, train, assuming you could trained. Get some, assuming on. you could get somebody on the phone. Well, that's that's just it. And where travel agents have in the past proven their their value, is for instance when the volcano went up in, in Iceland, 2010, and, and the air tra- traffic across the Atlantic was dr- disrupted. You could wait on hold, trying to talk to an online travel agency for hours to try to rebook, or if you had a travel agent, you'd call your travel agent. They've got the the reservation system right in front of them, and they were filling all the seats of what it was available in terms of routing around it. So that was one instance where there was, there was value proven. And the other thing that people have seen is that very often, maybe the price would be the same with a travel agent or an uh, online agency, but the travel agent has arranged upgrades and so uh, if there's if there's an issue they can call the general manager they add value there are travel agents and many more of them than you'd think that have preferred supplier relationships
0: with hotels, airlines, and cruise lines, so that if you went online and you just, you know, the, the, the biggest myth is when you go online and you're looking for a fair or a hotel room and it says only three available or last two left, <laughs> it makes you think that they're only the last two left. No, it's the last two left in the allotment that that particular online travel agency was given by the travel provider. It doesn't necessarily mean there are only two seats left on the plane. Right. I mean, and people forget that all the time and they go, oh my God, and I got to book it now. You know, we should never lose sight of the importance of the conversation. No different than what I'm having with Arnie right now. That's where the travel agencies really prove their worth. They can talk you through stuff.
4: They can. So I mean, they're, 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 when you start listing all of these different... Uh, values that are added by using a travel advisor, the fees that they charge are well worth it. And, and by that. the way,
0: I want to be clear on something. I'm not here promoting travel agents. I'm promoting, I'm promoting and presenting the opportunity to have that conversation. So for example, I'm not telling you not to research online. I do it every day. But once you do that, before you commit to anything, talk to somebody. And once you do that, you have a halfway decent chance
4: of winning the battle yeah because you'll really be you'll be understanding all the options
1: what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way (laughs) maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one
0: My thanks to Arnie. When Dylan Thuris' first book came out, I not only bought a copy for me, I then bought about six copies for my friends. It was Atlas Obscura, which for travel geeks like me, was the perfect bedside companion. Just open it every night to any random page and learn something fascinating about the world. Well, Dylan is now back with his approach to global food, gastro obscura, and the book is just as provocative and informative. If you were to ask me my favorite travel books over the last two or three years, number one would be the book that I not only bought for myself, I give it to gift as gifts to others, because it's one of those books, and I, I can tell you some other examples, but this is one of those books that you keep on your bedside table, and then every night, you literally open it up to a random page. Just open it up to a random page, and you learn something. Of course, that book was Atlas Obscura. Well, there's now a new one out, it's called Gastro Obscura, a Food Adventurer's Guide, and joining us now, the, uh, the co-founder and creative director of Atlas Obscura, Dylan Thuris. How are you, sir?
3: Good. How are you doing, Peter?
0: Good. And I'm not kidding. I mean, I literally, I will keep that book and just, it's the most entertaining thing I do other than an atlas, a, a regular atlas. And I, I, tell my own, I tell my own staff, I say, do you own an atlas? And most of them don't. And I say, get a small one. You don't have to get the big coffee table version. And then every night before you go to bed, just open it up to an obscure page, and guess what? You're going to learn something. And that's exactly what what uh, what I did with your book. Because what your book really was, you know, the, the the full title was the Explorer's Guide to the World's Hidden Wonders, and you found some pretty obscure things, which I think was 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 great. Because that's the whole point. Uh,
3: yeah, that's the idea. The idea is, I mean, that that and you're using the book, I think, in a way that both. The first book and this book, Gastro Obscura, are sort of meant to be used, which is as a way to kind of just step into a little part of the world, learn a little bit about it, find out something fascinating, maybe, you know, something you'll bring up at a, at a cocktail party and say, oh, man, did you know about this incredible thing or this incredible food? And uh, and then I think, you know, it, it can also be used as a sort of reference when you are actually traveling to say, oh, maybe I want to do this thing or maybe I want to try this dish.
0: Well, the whole idea is to be able to immerse yourself in the experience. But first of all, you have to know about the experience. And that's where where your book comes in. The Atlas Obscura, the original book, still, I mean, I'm learning stuff. Uh, You had a couple things in there that I knew about. A lot of things in there, of course, I didn't. Uh, But in this book, if you're a foodie or think of food at all, you got to get this book because it not only tells you about the actual food itself, it tells you about the process um, and how it got to be. And, you know, I've always said that if you can understand and appreciate the process, that's when you value the product. And so when you ask kids today, and by the way, this drives me nuts, when you ask kids today you know, where food comes from and they tell you the store, I got a problem with that. Um, and, so, and, I'm think, and I think that's another reason why you did this book, to let people know you can actually you know, go someplace in the world and have an amazing experience with food as long as you understand the process.
3: Yeah, I mean, we, we try to do a couple of things in this book. So this is, you know, if Alice Obscura was all about showing you the hidden wonders of the world, these fascinating places that for various reasons aren't, don't make it into guidebooks or people just don't know about, we wanted to do the same thing uh, with food, with Gastro Obscura, with stories of recipes, ingredients, restaurants. Uh, and so we try and do both like kind of the, the history and storytelling of the food, where it came from, why it exists. Uh, or how it's made, and then we also try and give everyone a, a how to try it. So here's a place where you might actually go and and eat this, you know, stew that's been simmering for 45 years in this uh, Thai restaurant in Bangkok. That kind of thing.
0: Not to mention the 2,000 year old eggs in Egypt.
3: Yeah, well, the egg ovens. So the eggs themselves aren't 2,000 years old. I but know. I know. <laughs> This I mean, there is such a thing as a century egg, which is basically a long kind of uh, fermented or marinated egg. They're they're actually quite good. Um, They look disturbing because they're sort of black in the yolk, but they're delicious. But the the egg ovens in, in Egypt were an example of... You know, basically, chickens stop laying eggs when it gets cold. I've got four chickens and in the winter you just don't get eggs and that's how it is. But people figured out a really long time ago that if you can simulate the uh, warmth for a chicken, if you can kind of create the right warm environment, chickens will continue to lay eggs. And so that is exactly what was happening in these egg ovens. They were a way of sort of controlling temperature and making the perfect uh, environment for, for eggs to be laid and hatched. Um, so that was that was that.
0: We're talking with Dylan Thuris, the co-author of Gastro Obscura, A Food, food Adventurer's Guide. Dylan, in the research for this book, what was your biggest surprise? What is, what is one of the discoveries you made that, you, that gave you an oh-my-God moment?
3: It's a really good... Okay, so here's <laughs> here's one I love. Uh, you're familiar with a turducken, right? Oh, yeah. We're coming up on Thanksgiving. turducken got really popular, I think, because John Madden like brought one to the Super Bowl or something. Anyway, so you know, a turducken is a chick, chicken inside a duck inside a turkey. But this is really small potatoes in the world of what's called engastration. So that's basically putting one animal inside of another. And this was a really popular thing in the medieval period. Um, And it it lasted for a while. So there are a couple of recipes for this that are just absolutely mind-blowing. So uh, one, there's a kind of legendary recipe for a Bedouin stuffed camel. And it's basically fish stuffed with hard-boiled eggs, stuffed with rice, put into chickens, put into lamb, put into the body of a whole camel, and that is roasted over a spit. It's not totally clear that this has really been done, but there is there is uh, definitely it is talked about in kind of traditional uh, Bedouin recipes. There's another one that's my favorite, which is the first, uh, basically, the first kind of restaurant critic in France uh, wrote, a, wrote a cookbook in 1807. And he has a recipe in this cookbook called The Unparalleled Roast. And it starts with taking a single caper and putting it into an anchovy. And the anchovy is placed into an olive. And the olive is put into a warbler. Uh, <laughs> put into a series of 17 birds until you finally at the end get up to a turkey but the turkey is then stuffed into what's called a bustard which is like a kind of giant peacock like (laughs) bird and then this is cooked for uh, about 24 hours. And so this 17-bird unparalleled roast, it's like, which funny is probably no one was making this, but it definitely got attention for this guy's cookbook and really worked to get people uh, fascinated. People have been fascinated with this uh, forever. So the unparalleled roast kind of raises eyebrows. Uh, See, when you, when,
0: you, when you tell me that story, I think that when, when you finally get it together, you drop it out of a plane at 30,000 feet and destroy a city. <laughs> exactly (laughs) unbelievable what now tell me about the thailand monkey buffet
3: festival that's a little scary you think it's scary well tell me more well okay so basically the thailand monkey buffet festival is uh it's not for humans it's a festival held for the monkeys and uh the idea is this giant tower of fruit is assembled and the monkeys are invited to feast. It's it's got an opening ceremony with dancers in monkey costumes, and then the real monkeys arrive and begin climbing this tower of fruit uh, and basically going going nuts. And it's a ton of fruit. it's like two tons of fruit. So monkeys are you know revered as a, a symbol of prosperity and. Uh, well-being in Thailand. So this is this is part of that that tradition. So basically, feeding the monkeys is good luck.
0: Of course, there's a travel aspect to this book, of course. And you know, I've been to the Atacama Desert in Chile, the driest desert in the world. Tell me about the beer. I mean, that's crazy stuff.
3: Sorry, you say that again.
0: In the Atacama Desert in Chile, one of the driest. P- you know, places in the world, the, the beer. Yeah. I didn't
3: hear the word beer. That's what I, I thought you said, badir, and I was like, oh no, get yeah, the <laughs> no. beer. So right. So this is a part of the world where you there's basically no rainfall, so getting water is an enormous challenge. And in the 1950s, a solution was come up to was was devised to gather water in this area. It's a really ingenious system. Basically, the only water that comes in is these big fog clouds roll up uh, and over and into the desert off the ocean. And so that was really the main available source of water. So these nets are put up and they basically collect the dew. And the dew is then funneled down into pipes and then collected in these big cisterns. And once you got water, you're basically a few short steps from making beer. So in Chile, they make this fog-derived beer. Every beer you're drinking is... Brewed from the fog that surrounds you in that desert, so it's a it's a really like I find it a very um, romantic uh, idea for for brewing. Uh, yeah, I really like that one.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wine has a bouquet; the beer has a mist.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And and uh, you know, people say that it's got it's like very crisp, and that they can taste a little bit of the salt, because the fog is coming off the ocean. They say there's a little bit of a kind of nice, tiny bit of of that flavor in there.
0: We're talking to Dylan Thuris, the co-author of Gastro Obscura, a food adventurer's guide. Um, I I highly recommend it. So I'm I'm doing my little research and reading the book, and I come across a fact that really surprised me, and and I don't think anybody in my audience is going to get it. I didn't get it. You figured it out. The highest annual per capita pizza consumption in the world is who?
3: Well, what did you, what was your guess? If you had to guess, where would you guess? I
0: would have guessed the United States, or, or, or people would get Italy, of course. But, but no, it's it's
3: none of the none of the above. No, it's Norway, and it's <laughs> not. It's not like pizzerias. It's freezer pizza. Norwegians oh. love frozen pizza. They have the grocery stores have an entire aisle dedicated to just frozen pizza. Uh, it's it's not ultimately clear why frozen pizza became so popular, but basically it, it is just the go to food for like, I don't know what to make for dinner. Let's get uh, frozen pizza. And in the, it's a little bit different, too. They use Jarlsberg cheese and paprika. And this sells 9 million uh, pizzas every year. They are, they are an absolute pizza-loving people.
0: <laughs> but frozen pizza? Oh, but my frozen,
3: God. But frozen, yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, now, the next item up for bids in the book that I thought was hysterical is I spent a considerable amount of time in Guam, uh, in Micronesia. And, of course, the number one popular food there is spam, God help us. Uh, And then I find out that there's one country that really hated spam more than I did, Korea.
3: So spam is an interesting item. It's from, it it was invented where, where I'm from in Minnesota. There's the Spam Museum in Austin, Minnesota. And the thing is, is spam traveled the world with American GIs. Essentially everywhere American soldiers went, spam followed so you'll find that now spam do you have a guess of what what state uh is the most fond of spam where spam is the most popular
0: okay i'm gonna say something stupid minnesota
3: it is not minnesota we we put it in our our church casseroles and things like that but not that much of it no hawaii hawaii is this of course of course because it okay. came there with world war ii and then basically it just transformed into a million different dishes so Uh, Spam musubi, which is almost like a Spam sushi, it's Spam wrapped in rice and seaweed, is incredibly popular, but they have the Spam jam, which 35,000 people show up every year. I would say at this point, Spam is effectively Hawaiian as a food. It is more interesting things happen with Spam in Hawaii than anywhere else, except there is a dish, and I think this is what you were getting at, uh, called army-based stew. That is, it's got a similar background. So it's a South Korean stew. And again, this is soldiers show up in South Korea for the Korean War in the 50s, and they bring all of this stuff with them. And there's, meanwhile, while these soldiers are showing up with all their provisions, there's a food shortage in Korea. So people are hungry for whatever they can get their hands on. And they begin bartering with the soldiers or scavenging uh, what's sort of being thrown out. And what they find, what Koreans find is basically American cheese, beans, ham, hot dogs, and of course, spam. And all of this gets added to more traditional ingredients like kimchi and chili paste and noodles. And it becomes this thing called army-based stew or jjigae. And what starts out as a very kind of low-class dish over time has become really an absolutely beloved uh, South Korean dish. You can find it in s- restaurants all over Korea and really all over anywhere there, where there's a Korean diaspora, you can get a Buddha jjigae. And so another example of the way that food, you know, food is the story of kind of uh, two things crashing into each other. Sometimes people say fusion, but it's I think it's more like fission because it's two <laughs> things into each other and then a bunch of other stuff kind of shoots out of there and makes new dishes, new styles of cuisine and buddha Jigae is a, is a great example of that.
0: Oh, but but how is spam illegal in South Korea? Why?
3: Uh, I, I, spam, as far as I remember, is not uh, illegal in South Korea. I think uh, it's part of the the stew. I'm not maybe I'm not remembering something, but uh, it's definitely it's definitely part of Korean food.
0: I gotcha. All right, so now I got to go to the next item of right, yeah,
3: You're right. You're right. There was a ban on it for a while because people got. After it became popular in the fifties, they they I forgot about this whole part of the story. Basically, uh, it it became illegal. There was trading with soldiers, so it had this kind of black market quality to it. And then it was the <laughs> black 80s. market spam. Yeah, 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 it was black market spam. I forgot about that. It was the eighties, and then they and then they said okay, and they actually they produced their own version of spam. Now there's a Korean version of spam. Sorry, I like. Right,
0: so now okay, so now I've got a question for you. Where is the largest McDonald's in the world?
3: uh that is a good question let me see if i can remember i'm thinking of there's the there's the fake mcdonald's uh in iran there is is it in paris is that the big mcdonald's
0: no i'm gonna surprise i'm gonna surprise you
3: is it where we have a couple of really fancy restaurants is it portugal where is it i forget it no
0: it's not i'll tell you where it is it's in guam oh really and the reason is, they got sick and tired of eating Spam.
4: Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. Who knew, right? Who knew? We're talking to Dylan Thuris, of course, the, the co-founder and co-author of the Atlas Obscura books, the latest being Gastro Obscura, A Food Adventurer's Guide. Dylan Thuris, thank you so much for joining us. And and uh, again, the the, the the story that, that really amazes me uh, is that every time I turn the page in this book, I'm wowed by stuff I didn't know, and it's more than just cocktail party conversation. It's actually stuff I retain. That's how stupid I am, but it's true. And it,
3: Being surprised about the origins of pad thai. Uh, yeah. Do you feel differently about eating it now knowing where it comes from?
0: Well, you know, it's one of my favorite dishes. I lived in Thailand for about 25 years. Uh, and and if, uh, now when I hear what, what the origin is, fill me in.
3: Yeah, so so the, what, what's interesting about pad thai, I mean, it's, it's funny because it's a dish that most people are pretty familiar with, but... A lot of people don't know its backstory, which is that it was essentially called into existence by the dictator of Thailand uh, in the in the 30s. Uh, like Fibon Songkhram is a hard name to say. Uh, but he was he was uh, he wanted to basically make a national state. He saw all these big colonial powers sort of encircling Thailand. And he thought, okay, if I'm going to compete, I need I need there to be a sort of official, Thai state. And that's when the name changed from Siam to Thailand. He introduced sort of the official language, you know, introduced official clothing requirements. And it wasn't very friendly. I mean, a lot of this was oppressive to various ethnic and tribal groups. But one of the other things he did was he said, we're going to have a new national dish. It's going to be called Pad Thai, despite being made out of Chinese noodles. And it was something that, you know, he grew up eating. And so he just told everyone, you now, need to serve Pad Thai. He set up food vendors all around the country. And the funny thing is, is, is it worked. Pad Thai is the national dish of Thailand. It is beloved, you know, Thai people will say, you know, if you wanna know if a, a place is good or not, try their Pad Thai. And, and so in a weird way, it was actually effective. It did do what he wanted it to do, uh, yeah.
0: Speaking of other heads of state, if you go to Cuba and you order ice cream, it's pretty good. But the history of
3: it will surprise you, correct? Well, the thing. Yeah, there's some very interesting things about Cuba and and ice cream. Fidel Castro loved ice cream. He loved it. He loved it so much, in fact, that the CIA tried to kill him by putting uh, poison into his chocolate milkshake. Uh, It didn't work but it got really close. They were going to drop a pill into this thing, but the pill got like stuck in the freezer. Uh, but it's, it's called the closest to the CIA ever got assa- got to assassinating, uh, Fidel Castro, which in a way, like, I mean, God, thank God it didn't happen. Cause who knows what would have, would have happened. But yeah, the big thing is that, uh, Cuba is a huge place for ice cream because of Fidel Castro's love. And he was said to eat like nine ice creams a day or something. He had like (laughs) a huge ice cream, uh, uh, love affair.
0: I know. I, I, I was down there in 1978 to interview him and he was late because he went to get ice cream.
3: Is that true? Yes. I mean, there's a, we have a place, we have a specific, uh, ice cream parlor in the book that is like, was his, one of his favorite, uh, uh, ice cream parlors. And um, and it's still there today. It's still there it's still, today. It's still there today. It's uh, it's got like twenty some flavors. Yeah, and it, it people people still Cuba still has a very strong ice cream connection because of Fidel Castro. You
0: know the, the other thing that's interesting to me is and I learn things all the time. Uh, honey, honey doesn't decompose, right? It doesn't. It, it it. I mean, honey just stays forever. But honey had a
3: really interesting effect in terms of war, didn't it? Oh, yeah, there's a great so (laughs) there's some great honey related stories in this book. But I think the one uh, you're talking about is one of my favorites. So in Turkey, near uh, the Black Seas near the mountains, there is a very specific type of rhododendron that grows there. And there's a ton of different types of rhododendrons in the world. But this type has something in it called the grayanotoxin, which is a which is a neurotoxin and you know in one rhododendron there's hardly any but as the bees collect all of the pollen from the rhododendrons and turn it into honey it basically distills it into this psychoactive substance and it's called a deli ball or mad honey and people have been using it there as a kind of a medicine for literally thousands of years you put a little bit like one tiny teaspoonful in your tea is enough uh, don't do more than that and it's said to help with diabetes with hypertension, hypertension, all of this kind of stuff. So it's got a long history as a medicine. But if you take too much, it starts to cause hallucinations, dizziness. People can die if they have enough of, of it. And if you go all the way back to 67 B.C., what you find is that a whole army of Roman soldiers invading this region of Turkey. There's a guy named King Mithridates who refused to submit to the Roman uh, Empire. And they kept invading and they kept getting beat. And so this time they send a huge group of soldiers and they're, they're sure they're gonna win. But Emperor Pompey marched this huge group of Roman soldiers into this area of Turkey to defeat King Mithridates. But King Mithridates had this ingenious plan. He left out all of these chunks of honeycomb all along the Roman road. And of course these Roman soldiers are starving and could not resist. They picked them up, they eat this honey and very shortly after they are absolutely tripping their butts off and they are fainting and basically king mithridates by these soldiers swoop in and wipe them out it's one of the great sacks in roman uh military history and it's just an incredible connection to-
0: i love it the gift of honey that keeps on giving dylan thuris the co-author of gastro obscura a food adventurer's god thanks so much for joining us a great book again remember what i told you guys keep it on your bedside table open it up to an obscure page they're all obscura get it and you're going to learn something My thanks to Dylan, to Arnie Weissman, and to Premier Washington Misik of the Turks and Caicos. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts.
1: And for all the breaking travel news, that's an easy one. Just log on to PeterGreenberg.com. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash peter and zip through busy airports nationwide.
0: If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash
2: survey.